Thank you, Charles, for starting us off with those announcements. Thank you, Logan, for the prayer. Richard, for the songs. I asked Richard to sing that. He does a, a really good job leading that song. Uh, it can be very confusing, but he, I think he knows it best, and I uh, appreciate him doing that, uh, singing that for God. Uh, thank you all for coming tonight, and it's really good and encouraging to see everyone out tonight. Uh, there's, uh, my lesson tonight was kind of something that's been, it's nothing new, uh, but it is definitely becoming more prevalent, and we're going to talk about tonight is what does the Bible or the God, what does God say about homosexuality? Uh, it's when Natalie and I, and I'm sure most of you don't really keep up with, um, how do you say, like social media news too much, but uh, one thing that is definitely emerging more and more is the surgeries and procedures used to uh, essentially how it would be defined in our uh, time as changing a man into a woman or a woman into a man. Um, I can't remember his name, but there was a, a huge thing about it. Um, as we go on in this future, as God gives us more time, we're going to see more and more uh, of these kind of problems come up. Uh, and it's, it's up to us to talk about it, to stand up, to go to God's Word and open it up and see what it has to say about it. Uh, another thing that also is emerging is the homosexual marriages between uh, men and women uh, and how... You know, we don't find that in the Bible, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But also another focus we're going to hit on is uh, there are Christians or people that claim to be Christians that use hate and bigotry, uh, and they use that to uh, decrime these people, to make them out to be like they're monsters or something. And even though God does, as we'll talk about, he does hate certain things, and certain things are abominations to him, at our very beings, we're all people, and we're all loved by God, and at the same time, Jesus died for all of us. So as we get into this, let's just keep some of these things in mind. Uh, to start us out, though, I would like to go back to the beginning, because this is where God first made man. And when God uh, said that, you know, he looked upon everything, and Jim did an awesome invitation a couple weeks ago, he talked about how God would look after he did everything and says, it was good, it was good, it was good, day and night. The seas, the land, the birds, the creeping things, beasts and cattle. And then he meets man, and man is good. And he looks over at the man. He says, one thing is not good. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now notice this. You know, if this was your first time picking up the Bible, and you've never heard a story, and you just start reading right here, and you stopped, what could God possibly have in mind for this man, to have a helper for him. Think about that. Do you think God pulled Adam inside and said, Adam, I'm the creator. You've seen all the things I've made. I put you in charge of this garden. You've named all these millions of animals. But you know what? I think you need someone too, or you need something. What do you have in mind, Adam? Can you imagine if God came up to you and gave you an option of letting him create something for you? Could you possibly do as good as he could? Probably not. So now imagine God creates this woman for him. But notice how God describes her first. He calls her the helper. Uh, and then, is, of course, Adam, he'll name her Eve. And in verse 24, uh, Dan Byers, the, the gentleman that married Natalie and I, he, he, would, he opened this up to us and told us about how excited Adam must have been to first look upon Eve, to see someone like him, but so beautiful, so special, how excited he, he just, uh, he always said, go, woo I am so happy to have this woman now, this helper of mine. And it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, and essentially, 
Eve was taken from Adam. She was taken from his rib. You know, and I was put to me this way is, put that rib back, Adam. And to ever have that rib pulled back from you, to have you and your wife separate in any way, it's going to cause you pain. Uh, and that's what we do as, as husbands and wives, future husbands and wives. We, we become one flesh. Something also I've been thinking about a lot is the description of Adam when him and his wife knew each other. Uh, and to break it down, basically it's uh, when they first had, well, not first had, but had uh, sexual intercourse. It says Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, some people may say that that's what they had sexual relations, but I think it's got to be a much deeper meaning than that, to actually know somebody. And that's like one thing that uh, we're going to talk about too briefly is, you know, just the sexual context of marriage and how God gives that, and to really know your spouse. And because, as we all know, it's not just a physical action. There's very emotional things about it. There's spiritual things about it. And it's something that, you know, if, if we've done what God has uh, wanted for us, that we share that with just that one person, our spouse. And as if we notice sometimes that there's a different use of that. In Genesis 16.4, when it talks about Abraham and Hagar, it says Abraham went into her. It was a totally different meaning. The meaning for that was for him to have a child because Sarah did not think she would be able to give him one. In Genesis 19.33-35, this concerns the daughters of Lot. It said they got their father drunk and lay with him. You know, it was a big difference of how the term was used, of how this action was put into place. And then if we were to go on further, in Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis 18.20, there says there's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is when God has come to Abraham. He has promised Isaac. And he's waiting to, um, uh, he's going to go see Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we were to read that, it talks about how Abraham says, you know, God says, I'm not going to hold this back, this information from Abraham. And what does Abraham do with that information? He says, if you have 10 people there, essentially, it started out with 50, and he talked God down to 10. If you have 10 people, will you please spare it? The angels come that night. Uh, they come. They were going to go sleep into the town square, uh, and Lot just happened to be there. Lot was a righteous man. Uh, i kind of curious. as Why would Lot be hanging around in the town square? And maybe it was for this purpose, because he saw these visitors, and how does Lot greet these men? You know, when he sees these angels, he bows his face to the ground. And he, uh, I almost want to say he pleads with them to come stay at his house. He recognized them as something special. And so Lot takes them to his house. You know, what would have happened if they stayed the night in that town? What has happened many nights in that town before? Well, as we know, uh, the men, and it says all the men, young and old, came to that town, came to his house, banged on the door. They were trying to force themselves in there. They said uh, that they wanted to know the visitors that were in Lot's house. This leads to the destruction of these cities. These men, these angels blinded the people, and they immediately tell Lot, get your own family out. This place is going to be destroyed. And what was it destroyed over? I mean, surely maybe there were some other things, but the one thing that we have that stands out more above anything is these men coming to have sexual relations with these angels. And this must have been a a practice that was being done. So this, above all, this is an abomination to God. If something causes God so much pain and hurt that he sends fire to destroy it, think about the flood, how wicked it was for God to finally have enough patience to say, I'm done, I'm washing it away. Same thing with this. God destroys these cities over this sin. We have marriage today. And 
this is where we're going to first start. And one thing I want to talk about is, is there's this disjunction. And that sexual relations, they either should be restricted or they shouldn't be. And I'm going to explain that more. And if there's no restrictions, then literally anything should be permissible. Now, the thing today is people that are homosexual say, well, I love this person, and I should be allowed to marry them. Well, should you? Well, what if this man is more inclined to love children? Should he be allowed to marry them because he loves them? Should this man be allowed to marry multiple women because he just claims to love them? Should, they, should brothers and sisters be allowed to marry? And that's where we find this slippery slope. That's where we find when we don't go to divine authority that we have these problems that come up with people wanting to do things on their own. And uh, one of the things I found was if it's right to put on restrictions, then we need to do it by God's way. But if not, it's just based on what we feel is right. It's based on the cultural preference. It's based on what you think is right. It's unpredictable. And it cannot be bound universally because you'll find things as you go throughout the world There's no way you can bind all the cultures of the world with marriage just based on your culture. You know, if you were to go over and see how some people practice marriage in South America, you'd be shocked to see how they would do it versus how God tells us to do it. This is where we find divine authority with sexual relations. It says the only situations which sexual relations are approved by God is in marriage. That's Hebrews 13.4. And this includes homosexuality. If one is concerned about marriage as defined in Scripture, then we must recognize God is the only one who uh, can say what is acceptable. And that goes back to why. What does God have that we don't? What is so important about God that we can't make our own rules, that we are people that shouldn't uh, listen to him? God created us. He knows us. He knows what's best. He knows how he works. He gave things for us for a purpose. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, it also goes on. It says, Have you not read that he who created from the beginning, he made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's very important for us to realize this. This is what God did for a purpose. Uh, There's... His purpose was for man and woman to be together. If he wanted man and man to be together, wouldn't he have done that? If he intended for woman and woman to be together, would he have not done that? And we simply don't find that in the scripture anywhere of a same-sex marriage that God permitted. Uh, It only means that sexual activity between two people can only be permitted in a legitimate marriage relationship. And more. It says, for this reason, from the beginning, God created male and female so that he could join them together. What does that mean? You know, as God made Adam, he made Eve for him. He made a wife for this man that uh, he needed a helper. He wanted to have that for him. And, you know, he noticed that as time went on, Adam couldn't do things by himself. He noticed that as we would get on in our age, that we would all need husbands and wives to help us out, to get through this life together. It also said God joins. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says God joins together. So that automatically rules out anything man can do. And if God binds, if God joins, who can separate it? Nobody. And so God's definition of marriage is very clear. It's male and female joined together for life. Simple right? Is it always that simple? And that's where we have a lot of confusion today. That's where a lot of 
struggles come, I think, where we get frustrated. There's things that come up, and I think it's mostly because we have a wrong definition of what love is. And people uh, would rather take easy way outs and things like that. Next thing I want to talk about is marriage and the use of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the context of marriage is male and female. And it's right after teaching that the body is not made for immorality. And that's from chapter 6. And this is Paul talking to these Corinthians about that. And this is one more point that we're going to bring up later on in our lesson tonight. Uh, it says, among those listed not inheriting the kingdom in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, are fornicators, they're adulterers, they're effeminate, and those that practice homosexuality. What all does that mean? Fornicators, we can... We usually use that term a lot more. That is one that uh, has sexual practice outside of marriage, whatever it is. Adulterers are those that go outside the bounds of marriage and have sexual relations with people that they shouldn't. And effeminate, from what I found, is men that act like women. They're the ones that uh, take on the passive roles, they say, in a uh, homosexual relationship. And those that practice homosexuality now, there's a big difference here between practice and homosexuality. That's one thing that I wanted to kind of focus in on tonight. And what do we mean by practice? Well, when you practice a sport, or what are you doing? You're actually doing the sport, right? You're uh, taking an active role into this. If you are practicing adultery, you're engaging in an act outside of your marriage. If you're engaging in fornication or practicing fornication, you're practicing an unlawful sexual relationship with somebody that you shouldn't. And this is where I think a big argument against the born homosexual can take place. Because uh, I think an argument that is definitely rising is that I was born, and I'll use this term interchangeably, uh, I was born homosexual, I was born gay. And I can't help it. Now, however, there's a difference between saying that you're inclined to like the same sex and um, actually giving in to that inclination. It says, and one thing that I want to talk about is, what if there are those that are inclined to liking children more? What if those that are inclined to hurting people? Could they pass that argument off just as well? You know, if we really think about it, they could. Some people could say, well... I'm not homosexual, but I sure do like to, to have road rage, to curse. I like to go out and hurt people. Or some people that we call pedophiles, that, uh, and they'll say they love children. But we look at that as wrong, do we not? And then it, with this practice, you know, you can't see. It's, uh, one of the big things is there's a difference between inclination and practice. And the former cannot, can be brought under control so that the latter does not occur. And we can look at that from James 3, 14 through 16. So having an inclination does not grant us a right to do everything we are inclined to do. Uh, self-control is where this comes in. Self-control must be maintained. And above all, and I think this is the more common type, if you are heterosexual and you're born heterosexual and you're inclined to be with the opposite sex, do you have a right? Can you just go out and be with whoever you want? No, you have confines in marriage as well. So what is the answer to the problem of immorality in 1 Corinthians 6? Paul argues that marriage is the answer. He says that such a marriage consists of male and female in 1 Corinthians 7, and any other relationship results in something that will cause a person to be lost. And further, marriage 
was given for the context of having children. In Genesis 1.28, it says, This alone should help answer a question as to whether or not homosexuality is natural. And it wouldn't be. And one more thing that we can add to that is, how many people are, believe in evolution? If evolution is really as prominent as it be, would homosexuality be, uh, quote-unquote, you know, survival of the fittest? How is somebody that's homosexual going to pass on genes to help keep uh, making the human race better? Does that make sense? So as we kind of tie in this, some of these other philosophies that people have almost get shut down instantly, too. If you're willing to accept the homosexual thing as, you, okay, I can understand how you're born gay, and I'm an ev evolutionist, and I believe that we're, we're just going to keep getting better and better, how can we get better if we don't procreate? We can't. So in light of these facts that, one, marriage is specifically defined as being between male and female and that homosexual practice is specifically listed right alongside fornication and adultery as a sin that will keep us out of heaven, the Bible conclusion is definitely clear. And back to Hebrews 13 where it says, sexual relations are acceptable only within marriage, and marriage is only acceptable when God joins who together? male and female, and anything else will defile the marriage bed, as told in Hebrews 13.4. Now, we kind of mentioned that even though people may have these inclinations, things such as that, you know, does this also mean that they are allowed to, uh, the people that don't believe in this, are they allowed to be prejudiced? Are they allowed to hate, uh, be bigots? Of course not. Um, that's one thing that we'll talk about as Christians later on in the lesson, that uh, it's an argument of labeling instead of presenting legitimate argumentation and it should be rejected as false. You know, just because somebody does practice this or have an inclination, you know, does God and Jesus you know, say, he says he hates the practice of homosexuality. Now, I'm sure you've heard, and I'm not going to use the term that these other people use, does God hate homosexuals? I'll tell you, he doesn't hate homosexuals. God hates sin. God hates the rapist. God hates the liar. God hates the thief. God hates the adulterer. God hates the cheater. God hates sin. And we could put all that into a bucket. Now, at the same time, did God destroy a city over one sin more than another? Yeah, I can see that. Do we find in Proverbs where it talks about seven things that God despises and eight that he calls abominations? Yes, we can. But at the same time, does that give anybody a right to go out and cause hate, to cause more pain? You know, did Jesus come and... Uh, I don't always like using this because some people take it out of context. Not that anybody here will tonight. Uh, I trust all y'all. But you know, who was the one group of people Jesus always spoke out and condemned? Hypocrites. The one people. I mean, he taught a lot about how we should uh, be better and work harder and to do what God said. And he did exactly what God sent him to do. But uh, as far as going out to be hateful and things, we cannot find that in Scripture any, any place. That's where we're told, uh, you'll hear, well, we're told to love one another. Jesus said so. Some of these things I have is, and yeah, if that's the argument you really want to pick, then I'm afraid you're going to be wrong there too. It says, uh, one or more common objectives given uh, to the fact is that we love one another. But didn't Jesus say that we should um, love one another? Does that mean that we include loving anybody because of sin? And this arguing just that love should allow us to do whatever we want. It's a feeling that we can't control, 
And if it's something that we just really like and almost don't want anyone to judge us for it, we say we love it. Well, I love fishing. That's why I don't, that's why I don't go to work on time. I, I love to drink, and I, I'll never give that up. Well, I love, my, I love this guy here, and I want to marry him someday. That doesn't make sense. It's not an argument that we can have. It says that arguing that love should be defined by how we feel. And is that, is that what we find? Now, we just kind of read about uh, Isaac, how he was scared for his life because when the men looked at Rebecca, what does it say? She was, she was beautiful, right? So, yeah, that's something we notice. But, and that's one thing we talk about in, whenever Natalie and I were with Dan and Ernestine was, you know, those, those in-love feelings, they don't always go away. You know, you're still in love, but they get replaced by deeper, stronger feelings. And these deeper, stronger feelings hold a deeper, stronger foundation that help people get through their lives together in marriage. Because what happens all too often within the first year, two, three, five years, are people still married? Just for a minute, think about one person you met and how many times they've been divorced and remarried. remarried. Six, seven, eight times? Ten? You know, it's not too uncommon to hear people getting divorced and remarried constantly. And it's because they lose that in love feeling. And they're like, well, I'm not in love with them anymore. And then if we can just use love as a definition of how we feel, then we can use this as, well, I can do whatever I want with love. And if anyone says anything else against me, then they're considered hateful. Is it right to, for us to stand up against homosexuality? Do we have an obligation? Absolutely. Does that make us hateful people? No, not at all. So that argument uh, is dismissed as well. So what does Jesus teach about love, though? Jesus taught his disciples, and this, my brothers and sisters, is where we find love's meaning. We told to love one another. I love Jim. Do you see me wanting to marry Jim? Do you see me wanting to marry Ruby or Miss Laura or Logan? No. I love all of you. I feel loved by all of you. But there is only one person I'm married to here, and that's how it's going to be. We're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. Does that mean I go and marry my neighbors as much as I want? Because I'm told to love them. That's what Jesus said. He said to love people. We're told to love our enemies. How many people have a true enemy here that they want to go marry? Some people might say, and I hate to say it, that they married an enemy. They live with an enemy. No, that's not true. Love cannot be restricted to marriage. Love is so much deeper than a feeling. And we need to apply that uh, as much as we can and teach others how to apply that. And one of the big things that I like to think about is with everything, God protects us. Whether it's vengeance or revenge, whether it's fornication, if you have inclinations to have vengeance, God tells us that he will avenge. If you have inclinations to where you find it hard to have self-control and that God gives you marriage to do that. God gives us provisions and protection. If there are no divine restrictions, then neither fornication nor adultery can be considered sinful because marriage is just a matter of cultural environment with no ultimate meaning. If a wife were to go out and cheat on her husband based on cultural opinion and come back and says, well, I did it out of love, that husband cannot do anything against that. 
if a husband were to go out and do the same thing and the wife was torn apart, he says, well, I did it out of love. I love that person, but I love you too. Does that make sense? It doesn't. And this is where God's protection, his provision comes from. This is where we mess it up so much. Not we, of course, but just humankind in general, where we want to do our own thing. We want to love the way we want to love and not the way God has taught us to. And we end up hurting ourselves so much more, do we not? So we are taught to one another. Christians should love all people regardless of background, lifestyle, race, gender, sexual orientation, or anything else that might distinguish a group. Christians should also love drunks and rapists and murderers. Is that easy to do? I'll be the first to tell you, no, it's not easy. But are we told to? And that's another thing, too, is uh, we have machines now that wash our clothes. I have never, well, I've never really had to hand wash the way people used to. I never had to dry my clothes by a dryer all the time. I never had to grow my own food for, to live. I grew my own food because it was fun. I had a garden growing up. But now I'm provided for that. And what does all this stuff do? It's supposed to make us our lives easier. It's supposed to make things better, right? How many of you could keep a job and hand wash clothes and dishes all at the same time during the day and get everything done? Well, it's kind of nice to throw clothes in the washer and leave for work that day and come back and get it done, right? It's kind of nice to hire somebody, if you, have, if you can, to walk your dog during the day because you can't. But at the same time, this is where things are becoming easy. We like easy. When hardships come along, how much more is it that we rely on God in hard times versus easy times? In that case, though, friends, I want to tell you that loving isn't always easy and that it's not supposed to be easy, but it can be done. And after Paul had listed those sins uh, to the Christians, he said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And that's where we need to trust in the power of God to change all. So if we're going to accept that only God has the right to restrict sexual relationships, then the conclusion is quite clear. If we are not, and we're going to let man decide and base what restrictions should be used on, we can expect things to change and constantly get worse before it gets better. As for us and our house, we'll serve the Lord and we'll settle for divine authority. If there's anyone here that has a need of the congregation, won't you come forward now as we stand and as we sing?